Our scripture reading this morning is uh, taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And then our sermon passage uh, today is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18a. Again, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5 is our scripture reading. And then our sermon passage is uh, Philippians 1, verses 15 to 18a. I'll begin reading at verse 12 of uh, Philippians 1 just to help establish the context there a bit. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. The Apostle Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians 3, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. And now turning to Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, uh, but our focus is on verses 15 to 18a. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do and thank you, thank you indeed that we can rejoice in the same way that the Apostle Paul rejoices. We thank you that the gospel is proclaimed. Certainly, dear Lord, we do not always know the motive of those who preach the gospel. But when it is faithfully pro- proclaimed, when the truth of the gospel is, is expounded, when it is put before us, dear Lord, we're grateful. Because we know that the gospel is the power of salvation to those who are perishing. We know, dear Lord, that your spirit Despite whatever whatever motives the preacher may have, your spirit uses the truth of the gospel to draw sinners to Jesus Christ in faith. And so we pray, dear Lord, that the preaching of the gospel today, imperfect though it may be, would be used for your glory and for the benefit of those who hear. May you, O Lord, be glorified and we here this morning edified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you probably remember that in last week's sermon passage, Paul reassured his Philippian brothers and sisters that his imprisonment had, uh, perhaps counterintuitively to what the Philippians might have been thinking, served to advance the gospel. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to go ahead and read last week's sermon passage to you today, because it, it sets the context, it sets the stage for what Paul says in our passage today. And Paul cited as an example of the gospel's advance the knowledge on the part of the imperial guard that Paul had been imprisoned for Jesus Christ. And 
He was very excited for this reason. And then he wrote at the end of last week's passage in verse 14 that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And this verse, verse 14, provides the lead-in for what Paul says in our passage this morning. Most of the brothers. Paul here is talking about brothers in Christ. He's talking about fellow Christians. He's talking about a category of those who are proclaiming Christ who are are different than those with whom he deals in the book of Galatians, for instance, the Judaizers, the false teachers. Here, he's talking about professing Christians, those whom he regards to be true brothers in Christ. That's an important point. We'll get back to it later, but just keep that in mind. Now, we learn in our passage this morning that some of those who have been emboldened by Paul's imprisonment, odd as it may seem, preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And Paul goes on to say a couple verses down in our passage this morning that these uh, brothers do this because they think it's going to afflict him further. But others, as Paul says, preach Christ from goodwill. Now, his fellow Christians in Rome never would have expected the effective gospel ministry, uh, that effective gospel ministry would have come from an imprisoned person. Undoubtedly, no no doubt at all, uh, believers in Christ who were in Rome, they heard about uh, Paul's approach to Rome. We we know this from the book of Acts, that when he's coming to Rome, people greet him on the the Appian Way. They, They find him there and walk along with him as he makes his way up to Rome. But certainly they never expected for this effective gospel ministry to to take place. And the way that God used Paul to minister to the imperial guard and others, it seemed to make these other Christians in Rome think that if God could use a prisoner to spread the gospel, he could use them too. That seems to be the implication of these verses. And these Christians, emboldened by Paul to preach the gospel, fell roughly into two groups, two camps. Those who preached Christ from envy and rivalry, and those who preached Christ from goodwill. Now, we don't exactly know why the one group preached Christ from envy and rivalry. Perhaps they did not care for Paul at all. We know in other passages of Scripture that there there certainly were those who followed Paul or followed Apollos or followed Peter. And so maybe this is what was taking place here. Maybe these people were ones who followed Peter or or Apollos. They didn't care for Paul. But those who preached Christ from envy and rivalry, they were essentially, however, doing the same thing as those who preached Christ from goodwill. We're going to look at those who preached out of envy first. Now, in these verses, Paul says that that the first group preaches Christ from envy and rivalry, that they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, that they preach Christ not sincerely, but thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment, and that they preach Christ in pretense. That's what he says over the course of uh, the first three verses of, uh, of our passage. Paul uses the words envy and rivalry together in three other places in his letters. In Romans chapter 1, verse 29, he writes, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy. There's the first word, murder, strife. There's the second word that's translated in our passage as rivalry. And then deceit and maliciousness. 
Paul uses this term again in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. He writes there, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. There's the word translated rivalry in our passage. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Uh, there's the word for envy again. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the, th- the third use of these words is found in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, where Paul, uh, he's speaking about a false teacher. He says he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy. There's the first word. Dissension, that's the second word. Slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, in no other, none other of Paul's uses of the words does he, does he cast envy and strife or rivalry in a positive light. We can think in terms of, of a good kind of jealousy. If you're a spouse and you're, and you're jealous for your spouse, you don't you want your spouse in... in Uh, getting involved in anyone else. That's that's a proper and understandable and good kind of jealousy. There's no good way in in the way that Paul casts these words, envy and rivalry, there's no way, a positive way, to look at them. Now, Paul is not excusing the sin because they are such great preachers and teachers. He's not saying that the motives of these people who are preaching Christ are unimportant or that they are not sinful. And Paul isn't saying that they are false teachers either, the way that he speaks of the false teacher in 1 Timothy 6. He's saying that they have false motives for what they are doing, for preaching Christ. And these other passages, Romans 1, Galatians 5, 1 Timothy 6, they all make it very clear that envy and rivalry are sins. And one commentator writes about this out of envy toward Paul, perhaps with a kind of unsavory delight that enjoys kicking an opponent who is down. They now view Paul's imprisonment, possibly evidence of God's judgment, as their chance to preach Christ correctly. This is the opportunity they've been waiting for. They get to use Paul as a bad example. They can be the good example. But Paul is not worried about that right now. His concern, as he says, is that Christ is proclaimed. He's not really concerned about the motives that are driving them to preach Christ. Paul can take heart in the fact that despite his incarceration, the preaching of the gospel is not limited to the four walls of the house in which he is under arrest. And Paul goes on to say that in verse 17, that those who preach the gospel from envy and rivalry also do it out of selfish ambition. Now, this word translated selfish ambition in verse 17, it's used again uh, just a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And we all know the passage that this verse leads into, the passage of Christ's great humility and his humiliation. Well, this word for selfish ambition, it's used five other times in the New, Testaments, but, but New Testament beside, uh, besides these two uses in Philippians. And one of those other times is in James chapter 3, verse 16. James uses the word again in verse 14 of chapter 3, but in verse 16 he writes, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
Now these brothers, they are envious, they are rivalrous, they are selfish, they are seeking their own gain at Paul's expense. That's what Paul says in the second half of verse 17. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. These brothers are not sincere in their proclamation of Christ. And that word translated not sincere, uh, it's related to the Greek word for holy, and it means pure, sacred, clean, chaste, morally blameless. Their flawed motives for preaching the gospel have rendered these men insincere. They think or suppose that by preaching the gospel, they're hurting Paul, that they might be afflicting him in his imprisonment. And that phrase, thinking to afflict in the ESV, it doesn't quite capture what was originally said. Paul's original words are more along the lines of these rivals supposing that they could raise or increase the persecution that Paul is experiencing in prison. It's like they're, they're turning up the gas on the flame. They're trying to make it hotter for Paul. Well, the NIV actually does a pretty good job of, of getting at the original language. It says they're supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am, cha- while I am in chains. And so what we're left here, and speaking of this, this first group of men who are, are preaching Christ, we're left with a picture of cruel men who are trying to further the persecution that Paul is experiencing. And these are the men to whom Paul refers in verse 14 as brothers. Now we all know that our best good works are tainted with a measure of impure motive. We all know that nothing that we do is completely perfect in every way because we're still afflicted with the remains of our old sinful nature. But we tend to minimize our impure motives. We, we tend to give our, ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And we know that God will accept our good works, just as our confession says that the person who believes being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in Him. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, paragraph 6. Without really trying, Paul is getting at the ugliness of impure motives behind good works. He's exposing the true sinfulness of sin. The exposure of the cruelty of these men reminds us of what we as Christians are capable of. And it appears that these men weren't blind to their own impure motives. Somehow they had to let Paul know why they were preaching Christ. They were doing it to hurt him. But all too often, we are blind to our own impure motives. We, we frequently assume the worst motives in others while ignoring our own worst motives. And Paul here reminds us without intending to, most likely, that we are capable of some pretty bad reasons for the things that we do. And we sort of brush it away by saying, well, yeah, all of our best good works are tainted with impure motives. They're tainted with sin, but God accepts it, so it's okay. And we sort of let it slide. Now, the other group, however, they preach Christ from goodwill, as Paul puts it uh, back in verse 15. They aren't envious of Paul. They don't consider themselves to be in rivalry with Paul. They have goodwill toward Paul. And Paul uses this same word in chapter 2, verse 13, where he writes, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The, the word translated good pleasure is the same word that's translated goodwill in our passage. 
Verse 16 goes on to say that these brothers do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The envious and rivalrous brothers preach Christ out of selfish ambition, but these preach Christ out of love. But whom is the object of their love? Is the love out of which they preach Christ a love for God or a love for Paul? Well, Paul does not specify the object of uh, their love, but given that the rivals have specifically set out to hurt Paul by preaching the gospel, it seems that these brothers have set out to show their love for Paul by preaching the gospel. However, as one commentator uh, puts it uh, in his commentary on this passage, love for other Christians, love for the lost, and love for God are likely in Paul's broader thinking as for him, uh, uh, because love is indiscriminate. Indeed, as with most of the New Testament, love for others demonstrates love for God. And so it may very well be that these are preaching Christ out of, of goodwill because they love Paul. But their love for Paul is also an expression of their love for the Lord. These brothers preach Christ out of love because they understand the true reason for Paul's imprisonment. While rivals might have seen his imprisonment as God's judgment against Paul, those who have goodwill toward him saw that his chains... That, that Paul was in chains by, chains by divine appointment. And the word translated put here in this verse is used a number of times in the New Testament. It's used in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, which is found at the top of our order of worship in the bulletin. We read there, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And the word translated appointed is the same word found in verse 16 of our passage. The New King James and the New American Standard, they both translate it this way, using the word appointed. But either way, whether it's the way the ESV translated, puts here, put here, the way that the New King James and the New American Standard put it, uh, appointed, either way, Paul and those who support him understand that God has put him right where he wants him. And that Paul is doing just what God has appointed him to do. But one other note about this word uh, translated put here or appointed. It was originally a military term, as one commentator writes. And so here Paul might be using military motifs ironically. Paul is in prison in Rome by God's appointment, a general in the army of God or even a spy in the enemy camp. And Paul uses the same word in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, which we read earlier where he says that no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. The word translated destined is the same word translated put here in our passage. And so we might say if we're thinking uh, in more military terms that Paul has been commissioned for what he is doing. And what he is doing is defending the gospel. Now you probably know that the word translated defense is the Greek word from which the English word apology is Derived. It's, it's the reason that we say we, we have apologetics. We have a, a defense for the, for the hope that we have. We give a reason for the hope that we have. Apology used to mean to give the reason why something was being done. Books used to begin with an apology. Not the author saying that they're sorry uh, for the book that they've written, but the author uh, saying the reason why the book has been written. And Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, where he writes, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that, that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That word translated defense is the same word as found in our passage. 
And you may remember that Paul has already used this word once before, back in verse 7, where he said, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, in some ways, Paul's defense of the gospel has taken on an offensive dimension. What's the old saying, the best defense is a good offense? George Washington is quoted as saying that that, uh, offensive operations oftentimes is the surest, if not the only in some cases, means of defense. Paul has made a a march, much of it by sea, so perhaps advance is a better uh, term here. He's advanced from Jerusalem to Rome. His defense of the gospel is in reality an offensive action against the enemy. He is taking the fight to them. Well, the better way to understand it is that God is taking the fight to the enemy, using Paul as the weapon in his hand. It is by God's appointment, his commission, that Paul is right where he is. And Paul is primarily at this point preaching the gospel to members of Nero's elite imperial guard. He literally is taking the fight to the Roman army. He has not waited for them to come to him. God took him to them. And because God is using Paul in this way, others have taken up the fight as well. They have been encouraged and emboldened by how how God has used Paul. And as we've already seen, some with sincere motives and others with impure motives. But as Paul says in verse 18, in every way, whether, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Though some of the brothers are preaching Christ and they're doing it to hurt Paul, to put the screws to him, he doesn't care because Christ is being truly proclaimed. If they were teaching some false gospel, some other gospel, something that was not true, Paul then would have reason to be concerned. But they're doing it just to hurt him. And because Paul understands that he has been put where he is for a reason, the attempts of these brothers to hurt him have failed. He knows that his being in chains is not the judgment of God, as these brothers may presume. He hasn't allowed himself to get down and dejected. He's not believing that God must not love him, thinking that if God did love him, he would have never allowed such a thing like this to happen to him. Paul is not letting himself think in these uh, bad ways. Paul understands that everything that happens to the Christian happens according to God's divine, most wise plan for God's glory and for the Christian's good. Paul understands that he has been appointed, he has been destined to be chained to a praetorian guard in Rome. And the fruit of that appointment is abundantly clear to him. The whole guard knows why he is in chains in Rome. And some of them are beginning to respond. The fruit is abundantly clear to him in the fact that these brothers have been emboldened to preach Christ out in Rome. Even though the threat of persecution is very real to them. And Paul feels this way for this reason. Because he understands that the gospel is what transforms sinners into saints. He understands that it is not the imposition of rules, of regulations, of laws that makes sinful men behave in a righteous way. He understands that the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, is what truly changes people. And that's what he's concerned about. 
And because of this, because of what he understands, he can rejoice. As he says there at the end of verse 18a, he can rejoice no matter by whom the true gospel is preached. Because when the gospel is truly preached, when the truth of the gospel goes forth, God uses it to draw sinners to himself. He uses it to save people who hate him. The truth of the matter is that true brothers and sisters can have true disagreements with one another. True people, true believers who are are destined to be with one another for eternity in heaven can have a breakdown in their relationship to the point where one is preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, hoping to hurt Paul. That's the sad reality in which we live. But Christ, Christ is proclaimed. Either way, the good news of the gospel goes out. And those who are at rivalry with one another, they will be reconciled to each other. They will be transformed. They will be made right with one another, whether in this life or in the life that is to come. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do indeed thank you. We thank you that you have ordained it so that the gospel is proclaimed. The gospel goes forth. There are those occasions, O oh Lord, where the gospel is preached out of rivalry and envy. It is always the case, dear Lord, that the gospel is preached with a mixture of motive, both pure and impure, because the gospel is preached by mere men who are sinners. But Lord, we thank you that you use vessels that are weak to proclaim a message that is perfect. That you use sinful men Proclaim the gospel so that other sinful men and women might come to faith in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we pray for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We pray, dear Lord, that you continue to draw sinners to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.